This week, ESL details $5 billion bid for Sears. iHeart confirmation hearing begins. PG&E may face tighter probation conditions. Hornbeck launches exchange for 2020 notes. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Alex Brosman, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Reorg First Day team Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland, plus legal analyst Karen Lung, provide us with their annual review of Chapter 11 filing activity. It's Sunday, January 13th. Transform Holdco, an entity managed by ESL Investments, made a revised $5 billion bid for Sears Holdings. This revised bid incorporates the $4.4 billion purchase price offered in ESL's original going concern offer submitted to the company on December 28th. The revised proposal includes the assumption of additional liabilities, which the firm says could increase the total purchase price by up to $663 million for an aggregate consideration in excess of $5 billion. Pursuant to Judge Robert Drain's oral rulings and the agreements reached at a status conference on January 8th, the revised bid constitutes a, quote, qualified bid, which will be tested against the other bids Sears received at an upcoming auction on Monday, January 14th. The ESL bid construct still requires the release of all causes of action against ESL and ESL affiliates in exchange for $35 million and the additional liabilities ESL has taken on. The fund notes that, consistent with the original bid, it has also provided the debtor's counsel with a letter executed by the second lien collateral agent, authorizing the credit bid of the second lien. Whether ESL will be able to credit bid still remains unknown, as the debtors waived a condition in the bidding procedures order that required the bankruptcy court's prior authorization to do so, reserving the determination for the sale hearing instead. ESL was also required to put down a $120 million cash deposit with its bid, of which almost $18 million is non-refundable in the event ESL's bid is not selected as the winning bid. Meanwhile, on Thursday, the ISDA Determinations Committee agreed to review the anonymous January 9th question asking whether the SRAC CDS auction should be delayed until after any bankruptcy court hearing on the sale of Sears go-forward stores. The sale hearing is currently scheduled for February 1st, and the ISDA SRAC auction is currently scheduled for January 17th. It was a busy week for Pacific Gas and Electric, including downgrades to below investment grade by S&P Global Ratings and then by Moody's Investor Service, which, according to the company's most recent 10Q, will force PG&E to, quote, fully collateralize up to $800 million in net liability positions. Also, the judge overseeing the probation of Pacific Gas and Electric in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California issued an order to show cause on Wednesday. The judge directed the parties in the case to show why PG&E's conditions of probation should not be modified following the 2018 wildfires. PG&E's probation relates to the San Bruno gas explosion, which killed eight people in 2010 and for which the utility was found guilty of six felonies in 2016. Generally, the court proposes that PG&E re-inspect all of its electrical grid between now and the 2019 wildfire season, 
and that during the 2019 wildfire season, PG&E supply electricity only through those parts of its electrical grid that it has determined to be safe under the prevailing wind conditions. Separately, the federal judge, William Alsup, endorsed a finding from probation officer Jennifer Hutchings and concluded that there is, quote, probable cause to believe that PG&E violated the conditions of their probation. The finding from probation officer Hutchings details the manner in which PG&E is said to have violated its probation, alleging reporting failures related to the October 2017 fires in Butte County. A hearing in the case is scheduled for January 30th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Meanwhile, the Public Utilities Commission of the State of California, or CPUC, held its first public hearing of 2019 on Thursday, where it discussed the CPUC's planned criteria and methodology for the implementation of wildfire cost recovery pursuant to the legislation enacted by SB 901. The CPUC voted unanimously in favor of the Order Instituting Rulemaking, or OIR, intended to, quote, develop the methodology of implementing this legislative directive. The iHeart confirmation hearing kicked off this week. Judge Marvin Isker oversaw the first day of the hearing. The court heard live testimony from a number of the debtor's witnesses, as well as opening arguments from the plan proponents and from Legacy Notes trustee Wilmington Savings Fund Society, the main objector to confirmation. Judge Isker also heard arguments on certain limited plan objections submitted by indenture trustees for iHeart's PGN notes. Earlier in the week, the judge said that he had almost completed his long-awaited opinion in the Legacy Notes trustees' so-called springing lean adversary proceeding. At a telephonic conference, the judge said he aimed to, quote, get the opinion out on the 11th or the 14th. However, at Thursday's confirmation hearing, he said, I'm going to end up ruling, probably not Friday anymore, but next week I'll rule. Last month, Judge Isker set up a three-step schedule for confirmation proceedings. Under that timeline, the court considered confirmation issues at Thursday's hearing other than those relating to the proposed settlements with Clear Channel and Gamco, as well as certain class action issues. The next confirmation hearing date is scheduled for January 17th. On the island of Puerto Rico, to start off the week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit heard oral arguments on Monday on appeals by the ERS bondholders and the Puerto Rico funds related to Judge Laura Taylor Swain's rulings on whether the bondholders' security interests are properly perfected or are subject to avoidance. The court took the appeals under advisement. The bulk of the arguments focused on which party should bear the burden in the event that there is an ambiguity regarding the appropriate debtor name given the inconsistency noted by the court in the English translation of the name of Puerto Rico's retirement and benefit system in a 2013 amendment to the ERS Enabling Act. The court did not say when it will issue a decision. Also in Puerto Rico's cases, the PROMISA Oversight Board on Thursday filed a brief opposing Piaje Investments' request for the U.S. Supreme Court to review a decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. The Oversight Board contended that the cert petition, quote, fails to satisfy any of the court's criteria for granting Supreme Court review and stressed that the First Circuit's decision, quote, was rendered on interlocutory review of a non-final order denying a preliminary injunction and stay relief. On Wednesday, the PROMISA Oversight Board filed the third amended plan of adjustment for COFINA, as expected, with changes including those related to the claims of AMBAC, White Box, and COFINA trustee Bank of New York Mellon, 
as well as the inclusion of a provision related to the remarketing of the new COFINA bonds that will be insured by Assured. Various parties, including the Oversight Board, COFINA, Bettina White as the COFINA agent, and the COFINA senior bondholders, submitted filings supporting the confirmation of COFINA's plan, for which a hearing is scheduled on Wednesday, January 16th. Separately, Puerto Rico's political leaders this week attacked a reported plan by the White House to claw back federal disaster relief funds to build a border wall between the United States and Mexico. In a press release Friday morning, Governor Ricardo Rossello urged President Trump to explicitly state whether he wants to, quote, support or, quote, undermine the rebuilding of Puerto Rico and other U.S. jurisdictions. Resident Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez issued a press release on Thursday criticizing the plan, despite having voiced support for the wall, saying that she does not support the, quote, reassignment of funds that we have approved in a bipartisan effort in Congress for the recovery and reconstruction of Puerto Rico. U.S. Representative Nidhi Velasquez of New York said that Democratic members of Congress will, quote, fight such a move with every ounce of energy we have. A crossholder group of Hornbeck offshore bondholders, represented by Milbank and Mullis, will not support the offshore service vessel provider's proposal to exchange up to $200 million of its 5 and 7 eighths 2020 senior notes for new nine-and-a-half term loans due 2025, Reorg reported on Tuesday. The group represents nearly a majority of the 2020 notes, the sources said, and over 60% of the 2021 notes. Hornbeck announced the exchange offer on Monday night, which will be conducted as a modified Dutch auction. The OSV provider is offering a total consideration range of between $760 to $850 in term loans due 2025 per $1,000 principal amount of the 2020 notes. The term loans would have a term of six years, bear interest at 9.5% per annum, and be secured by a second priority interest in the collateral securing the company's existing $300 million first lien delayed draw term loan facility, which was fully drawn as of December 31st, the company announced on Wednesday morning. The exchange offers conditioned on a minimum of a majority of the aggregate principal amount of notes being validly tendered and accepted for exchange by the company in the exchange offer. Other top red stories of the week were... Acorn to interview financial advisors next week in anticipation of discussions with First Lien Lender Group. CTI Foods enters into forbearance agreement with lenders after failing to make December 31st payments on First Lien term loan. SunGuard AS begins debt restructuring discussions with lender advisors amid potential Q2 covenant breaches. Now, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor, and hello all. And this is the week when it starts to get a little bit busy, starting with some high drama on Monday, January 14th, with the auction for substantially all of the assets of Sears. Mr. Edward Lampert has submitted a revised bid through an entity called Transform Hold Co. It includes the assumption of liabilities, which brings the aggregate price to over $5 billion, compared with his previous $4.4 billion offer. At GN Marine, we have an RSA and final dip hearing, a planned status conference for Exco Resources. I hear the Haynesville, where the company has some wells, is booming thanks to the LNG trade. We also have Albertsons with its third quarter earnings and a conference call. Tidewater's offer for its 2022 notes expires, and we're expecting an opinion in the iHeart springing lean matter. Tuesday, January 15th, it's even busier. 
Puerto Rico oral arguments before the First Circuit in the AMBAC HTA matter. In First Energy, there's a pretrial conference in the Exelon adversary matter. And a disclosure statement for Parker Drilling. And by the way, if any of y'all come down to visit management here in Houston, their offices are at the Greenway Plaza, and you should get them to take y'all to Figi's Barbecue, which is in the basement. I highly recommend the brisket. But wait, there's more, and I'm still talking about Tuesday. The early tender deadline in Talon Energy. A coupon is due on a cents 4% converts. That's related to Monotronics and Sanchez Energy, a name near and dear to me. The coupon is due on its 6th and an 8th of 2023. Moving right along, Wednesday, January 16th, we have a Cofina settlement and plan hearing in Puerto Rico. Disclosure statement hearing for LBI Media and for Ditech. It's the end of the grace period on their second lien notes, on which the coupon was not paid last month. You know, I'm dating myself here, but how many of y'all remember their TV ads? Lost another loan to Ditech. Well, anyways, back in the 90s, Ditech's founder would appear in the TV spots. I think his pitch was 125% LTV mortgage loans. Dr. J. Paul Redham, his PhD is in philosophy. And he's actually moved on from mortgages and has made an awful lot of money in thoroughbred racing. So how about that? Thursday, January 17th, we have a confirmation hearing in iHeart and a final dip hearing in Checkout Canalita. And on Friday, January 18th, an omnibus hearing for Sears. As always, thank you for listening in. I'll be away next week off in Louisiana doing the sorts of things one does in Louisiana. And Connor, back to you. Thanks, Jim. We'll be following all of that and more in the coming week. And here's legal analyst Karen Lung with First Day's Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland to discuss the team's 2018 annual review. Thanks, Connor. Today, the team at Reorg First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland, joined us to talk about Chapter 11 filing activity in 2018. Reorg First Day monitors Chapter 11 filings across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities. Jessica and Ian also track trends in filings through the First Day database. This week, they published their annual Year in Review story, which gives readers a bird's-eye view of the volume and characteristics of Chapter 11 filings in 2018. The report also delves into a sector-by-sector analysis of the last year's Chapter 11 debtors. So, Jessica, let's turn it over to you. Could you tell us about what you saw during 2018 in broad strokes in terms of the number of Chapter 11 cases and the types of companies that filed? Sure, Karen. A question we often hear is what is the actual number of Chapter 11 filings within a given period in the U.S.? First Day focuses on cases with liabilities of at least $10 million, and in that category, there were 336 cases in 2018. That's down 4.5% from the previous year, although the number of cases with over 100 million in liabilities was similar in 2017 and 2018. Cases increased in the healthcare sector by about 55%, in consumer staples by about 40%, and in tech by 130%. However, bankruptcies in the consumer discretionary and financials categories were down about 20% and 25% respectively. The number of energy sector cases remained about the same. Some of the biggest trends we saw were the continued struggles of brick-and-mortar retailers, challenges facing operators of rural hospitals and nursing homes, and the flatlining of oil and gas bankruptcies, which have fallen from the recent peak in 2016, but have remained consistent with somewhere between 15 and 20 cases every six months since then. 
The year also saw a steep rise in farm chapter 11s, primarily cattle and dairy farms, in the first half of the year that subsided slightly in the second half. We also saw a spike in technology sector filings this year, with many tech companies failing to bring their technology to market before running out of funding. From a high level, one of the themes of last year in the First Day Team's coverage was the continuing struggles of the retail sector. What's interesting, though, according to your report, is that the number of retailers uh, filing for Chapter 11 fell but the average size of those retailers that filed increased. That's right. So since the beginning, since the bankruptcy of Anna's Linens in June 2015, the retail chain industry has accumulated more than $40 billion in Chapter 11 debt. That's from at least 67 bankruptcies. 2018's new retail chain filers included department stores, fashion accessory suppliers, and furniture companies. This was on top of what has become a common event of filings from brick and mortar apparel chains. Bankruptcy petitions from shopping mall-focused retailers rolled in throughout the year. When we looked at their explanations for the bankruptcies, they cited the changing retail environment and the challenges posed by big online retailers like Amazon. Many of these companies have filed Chapter 11 with the hopes of shedding their excess and unprofitable locations and renegotiating terms with their landlords. Others said they intend to upgrade or revamp their web stores in response to consumers' changing preferences. And to your point, Karen, you're exactly right. Larger retailers had a big presence in 2018, with about a dozen filing with more than 100 million in liabilities. These included Mattress Firm, who blamed its bankruptcy on an aggressive expansion. About a week later, Sears filed as the second mall-anchored apartment store brand bankruptcy in 2018, after Bonton. Sears reported more than 10 million in liabilities, the first retailer to do so in at least three years. If you take a look at the period since mid-2015, the second half of 2018 is the period with the largest amount of retail Chapter 11 debt. This is followed by 2017's second half, which included the $7 billion-plus bankruptcy of Toys R Us. You also said in the annual review that the types of retailers filing for Chapter 11 have shifted over time. Uh, Jessica, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, in 2016, sporting and outdoor goods retailers, such as Sports Authority and Bob Stores, accounted for just as many cases as fashion retailers in 2016. However, 2017 saw many filings by apparel companies, as well as health and beauty and electronics retailers. This year, the big filings from Heritage Home and Mattress Firm, as well as Bonton and Sears, have increased the share of furniture stores and department stores. Fashion retailers made up 55% of retail chain Chapter 11s in 2017 and 2018, up from about 40% in 2016. We also saw an increase this year in filings from retailers selling home goods such as NSC Wholesale Holdings and also Homeowners Bargain Outlet. You also zoomed in on consumer staples in your review of bankruptcy filings. Right. The consumer staples industry has seen a steady increase in Chapter 11 filing frequency over the past three years. This sector also had a large number of farm and food distributor filings earlier in 2018. Farmers and food distributors had an increase in filings this year as compared with 2017, and in particular, farms concentrated in the cattle and sweet potato sectors. From its peak during the spring of 2016, the frequency of energy chapter 11 cases has fallen by more than half. Since that time, there has been a steady stream of close to 20 cases during each six-month period. We had just talked through the retail filings from last year, and one thing to point out is that the aggregate debt level for retail chains in Chapter 11 actually pales in comparison with the liabilities accumulated by oil and gas cases over the last three years. The roughly $60 billion in liabilities attributable to 
Oil and gas bankruptcies commenced in the six-month period between February and August 2016 keeps oil and gas debt far ahead of the retail sector. Since that period, however, the two industries have been piling on Chapter 11 debt at a much closer rate. For the two-year period ended in December, of 2018, for example, aggregate oil and gas Chapter 11 liabilities totaled about $42 billion in connection with 65 cases. Aggregate liabilities for retail chains, excluding restaurants and grocery chains, totaled approximately $37 billion in connection with about 50 cases. And what kind of services did the oil and gas debtors from 2018 provide? Oil and gas cases in the second half of 2018 included a significantly larger portion of companies that provide services to production companies when compared with the first half. 2018's exploration and production filers blamed the prolonged downturn in commodity prices, which led to production cuts, while services and support companies blamed the drop in demand for their services by exploration and production companies. Service providers for the oil and gas industry in 2018 consist primarily of those for transportation and storage, as well as drilling. There were also various coal companies that filed in 2018, concentrated in the second half, including Kimmel's Coal and Packaging and Anthracite Coal and Carbon Supplier. And in the fourth quarter, Tonawanda Coke, Mission Coal, and Westmoreland Coal filed for Chapter 11 relief as well. These cases for 2018 compared with six coal cases that filed in all of 2016 and 2017 combined. Mission Coal, in particular, was formed out of the wreckage of a prior distressed coal companies through the purchase of assets from Cliffs Natural Resources and Walter Energy. So with the demise of coal, I guess that means other replacement energy sectors fared better? Actually, it's quite the opposite. There were several renewable energy companies that also succumbed to Chapter 11, including Raw Power 3's solar platforms, as well as manufacturers of wood pellets, which are an alternative to fossil fuels, such as Sega Biofuels and Confluence Energy. A series of wood pellet producers had also filed in 2017. So now let's move to another industry that you analyze in your annual review, automobiles and transportation. What were some of the biggest automobile-related bankruptcies from the last year? The auto-related bankruptcies ranged from American tire distributors and car materials supplier GST Auto Leather to vehicle replacement parts manufacturers UCI and Speedstar. ATD was one of the largest auto industry debtors to file in recent years. While most of the cases in the industry have come from owners of auto dealerships, the biggest cases with respect to debt have come from auto parts manufacturers, such as UCI and Speedstar, each of which reported up to $1 billion in liabilities. GST also reported a relatively high amount of liabilities with about $200 million in funded debt. And to pick up where Jessica left off, those were the biggest debtors, but we can also look at the average debt load. Excluding Takata, the average debt volume for auto parts manufacturers and distributors is $570 million, led by American tire distributors, which filed with over $3 billion in liabilities. For auto dealers, the average debt amount is just under $30 million. What reasons did the company cite for the bankruptcies? Um, are we looking at headwinds in the industry more broadly, or some more specific troubles? The auto dealer generally attributed the bankruptcies to reasons ranging from a decline in new vehicle manufacturing, um, based in part on an increase in rideshare platform ridership, down to competition from countries with cheaper production costs, such as China, for the aftermarket auto parts industry. American Tire, in particular, blamed the loss of suppliers Goodyear and Bridgestone, which had previously announced their own joint venture, Tire Distribution Business, to compete with ATD. Another filer was car materials company GST Auto Leather, which reported 
over $100 million in liabilities and also lamented a sharp decline in new vehicle manufacturing that it blamed on longer lasting vehicles and also the surge in ridership for the rideshare platforms. And which parts of the auto industry are we looking at when we consider the Chapter 11s from 2018? So there have been about 20 automobile industry Chapter 11s commenced in the past few years, of which approximately 41% have been auto parts distributors and manufacturers, while about 50% account for dealerships. With respect to liabilities, however, auto parts distributors and manufacturers represent a significantly larger level of liabilities, with auto retail Chapter 11 debt totaling about $300 million, compared with $14.6 billion for the auto parts segment. Subprime auto lenders were also hit this year, with filings from National Auto Lenders and Summit Financial Corporation, both based in South Florida and both blaming in part the 2017 hurricane season that struck markets in Florida and Texas and destroyed many vehicles. You also discussed Chapter 11s commenced by healthcare companies. Absolutely. Long-term care hospitals continue to file Chapter 11, citing diminished reimbursement rates from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, but at a slower pace than in 2017. A few trends have emerged with respect to healthcare companies. With respect to recently bankrupt hospital operators, the majority that have filed have been skilled nursing and long-term care hospitals, which make up just over 60% of hospital filings since January 2017. This is compared with approximately 40% from general and acute care hospitals. Many of the hospital Chapter 11 filings have been by facility operators serving rural communities, which have struggled to compete with larger metropolitan healthcare networks. Since the beginning of 2016, rural hospitals make up nearly 75% of acute, and, acute care and general hospital operators covered by Reorg First Day. Over the past few years, the vast majority of acute care and general hospital Chapter 11 cases have been filed by rural hospitals, but nursing homes have more often been filed by operators in urban and metropolitan areas. So how about bankruptcies by media companies? We've spent a lot of time at Reorg covering the iHeart case in the last year. Yes. Well, the filing of iHeart in March was 2018's largest case. iHeart reported more than $10 billion in liabilities and cited competition from the internet, digital advertising, and the entry of on-demand streaming services as reasons for its bankruptcy. Um, just less than a week after iHeart filed Pittsburgh-based MGTF Radio filed, which is a multimedia company offering print, radio, and digital advertising. In the second half of 2018, we saw the Chapter 11 filing of LBI Media, which is the largest privately held minority-owned Spanish language broadcaster in the country, with a portfolio of 27 television stations and radio stations. In recent years, LBI said in its papers that the growing Hispanic population in the U.S. and the expansion of its Estrella TV network have provided a significant growth opportunity for the company. However, the debtors also face the same market pressures that have broadly affected U.S. television and radio broadcasters, including the, 20, the 2008 recession and the diversion of companies' advertising budgets to digital media. Filings in the last 12 months also include film studio companies, Open Road Films, Modern Video Film, Weinstein, and Relativity Media's Chapter 22. Plus, there were also the filings from newspaper and magazine publishers such as Boston Herald, Daily Gazette, and also Penthouse Magazine. So moving on to another sector that you cover in your report, I was interested to see that you've observed the number of technology companies filing for Chapter 11 increasing this year. Yeah, that's right. Filings in the technology sector this year were more frequent than in previous years and included much larger debt volumes, with seven companies in the sector reporting over $100 million in liabilities, compared with just six in 2016 and 2017 combined. 
Some technology companies in 2018 struggled in their startup phases, failing to achieve sufficient funding to bring their technology to market or facing operational delays in launching their commercial product. Sorensen Media, which develops an advertising platform tailored to smart TVs, failed to attract adequate investment due to a restrictive capital structure. Acast Systems, which designs custom staging automation and video systems for live entertainment businesses, also failed to attract sufficient investment. And Freelink Technologies, a wireless technology re research and development company working on the commercialization of a, quote, new global wireless standard to replace Bluetooth, filed due to deficient working capital. And what was the size of these technology companies' debt loads? The largest ones were VR Technologies, which distributes technological production equipment for the entertainment industry, and it had over $750 million in funded debt. And then there was also hospitality industry technology developer InterTouch Holdings, which reported between $500 million and $1 billion in liabilities, which also happened to include a $50 million judgment. Another topic you delved into was prepacks. What did you find was the frequency of these cases and how they fared in terms of the size of the cases? Well, there were about 45 Chapter 11 cases in 2018 in the form of a prepackaged or pre-negotiated case which amounted to about 14% of all the cases for the year. The largest amount of prepacks came from the energy and consumer discretionary sectors with a 26% share. By contrast, in 2017, the energy sector represented the largest share of these types of cases. The prepackaged and pre-negotiated cases largely came from the bigger cases with more than a dozen prepackaged or pre-negotiated cases filed by debtors with more than $1 billion in debt, which was about 34% of these cases. When you look just at debtors reporting at least $1 billion in liabilities in 2018, approximately 65% enter bankruptcy with either a plan or a structuring support agreement, as compared with 58% for 2017. So we noticed that for at least the last two years, a majority of the billion-dollar cases were prepacks. Uh, one thing you also track in the First Day database is dip financing trends. So how did 2018's dips stack up? More than 100 debtors, or about one-third of the cases over the past year, requested dip financing as part of their First Day relief. The consumer discretionary sector, which accounts for 23% of all cases in the year, makes up 35% of First Day dip financing requests, followed by the healthcare sector, which accounts for just 13% of all cases in 2018, but nearly 20% of all First Day dip financing requests. Uh, the First Day team also uses the First Day database to keep track of 363 sales. So surveying 2018, how many Chapter 11 debtors filed uh, with the intention, with the stated intention, I should say, to conduct sale processes? They were about a quarter of the cases from 2018 that were filed in pursuit of a sale. Three quarters of those had stocking horse bidders in place at the start of their cases. Um, the largest concentration of the sale cases were retailers followed by healthcare companies. There were also about 10 retailers that implemented at least partial going out of business sales, ranging from Sears, fast fashion retailer Agassi, um, home furnishing company Heritage Home, and also the discount retailers. Samuels Jewelers and San Francisco-based Gumps also ran GOB sales. And now let me end with a question about the courts. Where were companies filing for Chapter 11 in 2018? The most popular bankruptcy courts remained those in Delaware and in the Southern District of New York. The District of Delaware was busier this year, seeing an increase in filings of about 10%. Consumer discretionary cases, primarily driven by retail, filed with the largest frequency in Delaware. 
The Southern District of New York's case frequency fell by 32% from 37 cases in 2017 to 25 in 2018. Well, thank you so much, Jessica and Ian, for joining us today to talk about the Chapter 11 filing activity that you saw in 2018. The First Day Team's 2018 Year in Review story was released this week, and we really encourage subscribers to check it out. It describes all of the stats and trends that Jessica and Ian discussed today and more. The report also features some beautiful graphs and images summarizing that data. Connor, back to you. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the media page, or if you're not a subscriber, on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg. 